This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The David Feldman Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Green News Report, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Blacking It Up, The Bugle, The Progressive, and The Colbert Report with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from the BBC News Quiz. Political pros agree that Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney has what they call an authenticity problem. And this might have something to do with the fact that his positions on important issues have shifted around a bit. But to some in the media, this is one of Romney's strengths. The Washington Post's Anne Gerhardt wrote that, quote, Romney's flip-floppery could be interpreted as a flexibility of thinking that might help him bust through warring ideologies in Washington, close quote. A New York Times news story on January 5th actually said this of Romney's flexibility, quote, independent voters might view Mr. Romney's shifting positions as pragmatic, and by highlighting his evolving views, political analysts say, the Obama campaign risks unintentionally promoting the image of Mr. Romney as a moderate, close quote. That sounds confusing, but it's actually pretty clear. The pundits know that Romney must go to the right in order to win the Republican nomination, but that once that's all settled, he'll be Mitt the moderate. In the meantime, voters shouldn't worry their little heads about whether he believes what he's saying. On January 10th, Washington Post columnist Richard Cohen wrote that he was counting on Romney to go back on his words, echoing the opinion of New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, who had written that Romney's eventual transformation will be a flip we should celebrate. Kristof added that he prefers a cynical chameleon to a right-wing candidate who actually believes in what he's saying. Along with the disturbing implication that at least some of Romney's words won't be taken seriously by the press corps, this makes campaign reporting seem like a big cynical joke, except the effect on voters and democracy might not be so funny. What are your thoughts on Rick Santorum? Because there's something disgusting I want to bring up first. <laughs> well, he is the, uh, you know, he's the GOP dip that's going to get a lot of media attention for the next week. And, you know, it's his turn now, you know, for everyone to pay attention to him. And he is just as crazy as all the other ones. So it'll be entertaining. What universe am I living in? Is he not the most... He's, he's opposed to contraception, which means he won't wear a rubber when he's screwing the country. <laughs> That's insane to say that he doesn't even think you should use contraception at Ever, all. Yeah. Well, he's the most right-wing on social issues of any of these candidates. Right? Clearly a horrible person. No, I, mean, I don't know. Well, 
I mean, uh, Michelle Bachman. I think he's further to the right on social issues than Michelle Bachman. Maybe not. I mean, you, you know better than I. But I, think I don't know anything. All I think I know he can, is last night was Michelle Bachman's most depressing evening since her wedding night. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a letdown. <laughs> well, what were you? You were going to bring up this thing about his baby, right? You know, that's we, crazy. First of all, it's not fair to Mark, who is a you're a mainstream. Yeah, guy. don't get David Feldman all over me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come on, so I'm come in here. I came in for the ZD. <laughs> I. There's just on a future episode we will discuss Santorum. I have a one thought about that that isn't a comedy thought about yes. is that I think what he did with his baby, which people don't know, his baby died. His stillborn. And he took it home and he and his kids prayed over it. I think it's incredibly it's like the creepiest thing I've ever heard. But I have to say that I give him a pass just because that's the worst possible thing that can absolutely yes. happen to a person. So whatever they did, and as crazy and as creepy as I think that is, whatever they did to comfort themselves, they get a pass. Right. Because, that's, it, that's because it's, it's the worst no, possible I, I thing I totally that can happen agree. to someone. I totally agree with that. Mm. But then once you do that... Keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's you a good point. don't share yeah. that information or that story with anyone outside your family that's, or that's social That's a good circle. point. In other words, like him sharing it is the egregious part exactly. even more than him doing if it. If you yeah. lose a child, I, I love my kids mm -hmm. as much as I hate mm -hmm. them, I love them. And I couldn't imagine, you know, having, uh, I, I was lucky enough to never have any stillborn kids or, you know, late you know <laughs> 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 Keep those crazy <laughs> tragedies to yourself, is what I say. No one wants to hear that. Does that make him a better candidate for president, that he no. prayed over his dead baby? Who gives a f***? Shut up about it. Yeah. That's what I say. That's the worst part. Because now it's like every other candidate has to come up with a better story. Oh, well, you know what I did? I hit a dog one time on the side of his freeway, and I brought it back to life with well, other I wonder, parts of dogs <laughs> that I uh, found. I wonder if just as you were waiting for your opportunity to do that different strokes <laughs> joke, that he just waits, oh, I hope I can bring up my dead baby <laughs> in this conversation. I just need just the right place to bring I, I, it up. Well, I, don't, I didn't just want to bring it up. I actually wanted to show it to you guys i have it right here hold on let me well, bring out my dead baby uh, well again mark i apologize because no 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 it's, it's not, look he talks about it and, and if there's nothing unsavory about as you say i mean maybe in the moment this tragedy anything's allowed the unsavory thing might be i mean you can i think you could reasonable minds could differ on this but i think the unsavory thing may be to bring, that it's brought into the political process that's probably that, a reason that it's brought thing. into the political process that this is a man who calls homosexuality an abomination and yet I'm supposed to be accepting of his lifestyle, which right. is... Yeah, that's a good point. Which is bringing a baby home to his kids and having them not only pray over it, but play with it. No, really? Yeah, that's in the book. And I read that, and so I said to my wife, well, I, do I talk about this? And she says, no, it's the sickest thing I've ever heard in my mm -hmm. life. And then she read about it, and she said, yes, talk about it, because he's running for president. And as Paul said, he isn't keeping this to himself. It's right. the sickest thing. And to do that to kids and then to quote the Bible and act as though this is the holy approach, it's just it's beyond. Nuts. It's nuts. It really is nuts. And Alan Combs from Fox, the mm -hmm. one liberal, brought it up. Yeah. And he had a back down. Yeah. He called it creepy. And then everybody said, how dare you call it creepy? How dare you? you know, in any civilized culture, forcing your child to play with a dead baby, they would institutionalize you. In America, you're a front runner. For it was president. so you're unusual, right. too, seeing Alan Combs lose an argument on Fox News. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, anyway, the, the I, great thing is your wife inspired you to tweet nonstop about it because your Facebook page is covered in comments about Rick Santorum's dead baby, which are hilarious, by the way. Yeah, I'm in because I don't know. I mean, I guess I should be a businessman and not tweet as much or go on Facebook as much and be sparing in my words and opinions to bring everybody into the tent. What is this business you're trying to start? Well, I mean, right. I mean, but I and just, are you hiring? I've gone. What is this? Well, actually, Rick Santorum is he's not elected president. He's going to host a reality show called If You Think That's Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> He'll just blow your mind every week with something incredibly creepy. I don't know what country this is anymore. I mean, what you think George W. Bush, you go, OK, we've now hit rock bottom. Right, right. And this country is a bottomless pit of depravity. Mm -hmm. It just keeps going deeper and deeper till you have a front runner who's talking about forcing his kids to play with a dead baby. Well, that's how this whole thing started. Remember, I think it was in the very first debate. They all introduced themselves by saying, I've raised these amount of kids and I have mm -hmm. this amount of foster kids and I've delivered X amount of babies. Who gives a f that's not the job that the right, president right. has. Well, this entire campaign at this juncture, because it's on the Republican side of the aisle, right? There, okay. they can be more social issue oriented because you don't have to worry about losing the middle and the left. You don't have to worry, yeah. you're not having to appeal to the middle ground. So they're really fighting a right wing battle on social issues. And so you end up with more extreme social issues. And you're right. You're right. They're not running for, they're running for Americana. They're not mm -hmm. running for presidents. <laughs> right. the, the they're running for, they're running you know, for the Franklin Mint. The, right. You know, for the next, uh, they're, they're right. hoping Pressing. they're hoping to be elected in the 1956 Republican convention. <laughs> no, basically. I mean, yeah, yeah the, right. Yeah. It's of it's God and country that they're that they're right. representing. I mean, how the president stands on half of these issues is immaterial. It's really immaterial. You're once right. the anyway, so I agree with you. But I'm just saying, once you get past this. Then you'll have to really have a dialogue about the economy. You'll have to have a discussion about things that appeal to the middle ground. Because the middle ground, will, if you turn off the middle of America, you're going to lose. You're going to lose the general election. Yeah, that's true. And the general public is more progressive than the media is. You mm -hmm. know? In other words, the media doesn't catch. The public was against the war in Iraq way before the media was. And the media only caught up like years after, you know, everyone else was fed up with it and knew that it was bull****. But you didn't hear, you didn't see that represented on cable news shows for years and years. Right. But the right. public was there, and it's like the same thing now. The public is way ahead of the politicians and the media on health care and all these things, but it just doesn't make it into the mainstream filter. Go ahead, wish you would. Go ahead. If you want to hold your own hand going up that cliff, or if you want to just hold back because you ain't up to it, go ahead. I spent Friday running around New Hampshire trying to get Republican presidential candidates to talk to me. I ran after John Huntsman uh, in Concord. Uh, Elon Riley, a producer on our show, did get a question to Governor Huntsman in, even though the campaign told me there was no chance for me to talk to him. Uh, then we drove an hour down to Dublin, New Hampshire, so I could stand in the overflow room at a Rick Santorum event and get a really clear picture of how I was getting nowhere near this supposed Rick Santorum surge. So I sort of went one for two on talking to candidates that day. Did speak with Buddy Romer that night live on the show. But then after we finished the show, after we wrapped up 
at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern. We did the show live, finished at 10. Right at the end of the show, somebody told me that Rick Santorum was in the hotel where we were staying right at that very moment, right then, right above where I was sitting, in fact. On the mezzanine level of our hotel, we found Rick Santorum. He was a special guest on WBZ 1030, which is a big, powerful news radio station out of Boston. The show was hosted by Dan Ray, uh, who's a great host. He was really running the rodeo there, fielding the calls, uh, keeping people on point. I think once Senator Santorum realized that um, we were there, he wanted to keep taking calls on WBZ all night. But sooner or later, you have to stop, at least for the ads. On the contraception issue, you said that you've been mischaracterized on that. Do you think that the country would be better off if there was less contraception use? You talked, I saw you talk today about what people, the, the liberty that people should do, what they ought to do, not what they want to do. I talked about a Brookings, a Brookings Institute study uh, that said that, that's 2009 study, said if you do three things, uh, you're almost guaranteed not to be in poverty. Let me know what we're about. And those three things are, number one, work, right? Makes sense, work. Number two, graduate from high school. And number three, if you're a man, get married. If you're a woman, get married. Uh, don't have a child before you're married. Get married but, uh, and, and don't have a child before you're married. If you don't do one of those three things, the poverty rate is 74%, and the chance of being a $50,000 or more income is 4%. So I would just make the suggestion that things that would cause the likelihood of any of those three things not to happen would probably not be beneficial to you from the standpoint of living a life where you can pursue and, and have economic success. Uh, and, and of course, engaging in sexual activity, even with contraception, there is a, is a, is a, is a good chance, uh, or there's a chance, not a good chance, a chance to become pregnant. So if contraception was more effective, you wouldn't have an opinion? Sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. I got the commercial break was running out. But Rick Santorum saved by the bell there. That was during a commercial break, which, of course, ends, and then they go back live on the radio. That was it. That was my time with Rick Santorum. Asked whether the country would be better off with less contraception use. Uh, Mr. Santorum, as you saw there, sort of, sort of ran out the clock talking about things other than contraception use. Uh, fortunately, though, we do know what Rick Santorum thinks about contraception because he's on the record on the matter. Back when nobody took him all that seriously in terms of his presidential prospects, Rick Santorum made his position on contraception very, very clear. One of the things I will talk about that no president has talked about before is, is I think, the dangers of contraception in this country. The whole sexual libertine idea. And many in the Christian faith have said, well, that's okay. I mean, you know, contraception is okay. It's not okay because it's a license to uh, uh, to do things in the sexual in the sexual realm that is that is counter to what what how things are supposed to be. In President Santorum's America, birth control is a sexual libertine idea. It is counter to the way that things are supposed to be. Um, at ABC's debate on Saturday, the moderators tried to sort of nail the contraception issue down for this year's uh, various front runners. Um, that effort was mostly derailed by Mitt Romney purporting not to understand the question. George Stephanopoulos asked Mr. Romney whether states can ban birth control, whether they ought to be able to make birth control illegal. Do you believe that states have that right or not? George, I, I, I don't know whether the state has the right to ban contraception. No state wants to. I mean, the idea of, of you putting forward things that states might want to do that no one state, no state wants well, to do wait. and asking me whether they could do it or not is kind of a silly thing, I think. What is this birth control business of which you speak? Silly thing. Silly.
and so on. Mitt Romney, like Rick Santorum, went on like that for a long time, sort of running out the clock rather than talking about his views on birth control specifically. Fortunately, though, we also know Mitt Romney's position on this, because back in October, he was asked about a constitutional amendment uh, like the one Mike Huckabee was pushing in Mississippi, the so-called personhood amendment, which everybody agrees could make hormonal birth control, like the pill, illegal. Would you have support of the constitutional amendment that would have established the definition of life at conception? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mitt Romney says he's absolutely for an amendment like the personhood amendment that Mississippi voters uh, said no to this year. He's absolutely for an amendment that, surprise, uh, could have the effect of outlawing the country's most popular forms of birth control. I know Rick Santorum wants to be the number one anti-Romney candidate, but there is not much policy difference between Rick Santorum and Mitt Romney on whether or not a state can infringe your right to have birth control. It is remarkable that a candidate as radical as Rick Santorum on issues like this can be considered a top-tier candidate. And it is even more remarkable that Mitt Romney, the overwhelming frontrunner, also can have taken a public position of opposing birth control, the most popular kind of birth control. But what's most remarkable, what's most remarkable about this year's Republican presidential field, this thing of opposing popular forms of birth control is the majority position among the entire field of candidates. Five of this year's Republican hopefuls have signed a personhood pledge from a group called Personhood USA. Of the candidates who are still in the race, Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich, Rick Perry, they have all signed on. Plus, there's Mitt Romney saying he absolutely supports the idea. Even Ron Paul, libertarian Ron Paul, who says birth control should be legal, even Ron Paul signed the personhood pledge. That could make the most common birth control illegal in this country. Birth control has been legal in this country in every state of the union for almost half a century since the Supreme Court said that states had no right to ban it. Half a century, your right to birth control has been the law of the land. And now comes the current Republican presidential field. It's 2012. Joining us now is Cecile Richards, president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Uh, Ms. Richards, thanks for being here. Good to see you, Rachel. Um, has there been a major party primary in modern American history where being against contraception is the position of anybody other than a fringe candidate? Never seen this. It's absolutely incredible. It used to be the Republican primary. You know, the whole question was whether or not you wanted to overturn Roe or not. But now that's not good enough. Everyone's for actually ending access to birth control. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, uh, Mitt Romney himself wrote his own USA Today editorial saying he would end the national family planning program that now serves 5 million women in America. So whether or not you have a right to it, you won't be able to get it because that's the means by which women get contraception. Absolutely. Country. And I think, you know, I know you showed a good clip there the other, of the Saturday night debate when asked, when Governor Romney was asked about his position on the right to privacy, which is the whole reason why married couples got the right to birth control, he said he didn't believe in the right to privacy. Uh, and if you look at the kind of the Supreme Court express that he's going to, you know, put into judges now that, that agree with Scalia uh, Thomas, we will be looking at actually for the first time absolutely entertaining the idea of making birth control illegal in America. Rick Santorum um, has been very open in the past, as you saw in that day, and I mean in the past, in October, right. um, about um, his feeling that birth control is wrong, um, that, it is, uh, that it makes for the wrong kind of society, and that he also believes that states have the right to ban it. He's now, now that he's being taken more seriously as a candidate, saying he doesn't think that states should ban it. Mitt Romney, having said he would support a personhood amendment, which would allow a state like Mississippi to ban 
to, uh, to, to ban abortion. Mitt Romney says that he also doesn't think that state should do that. What do you make of the candidates parsing the sort of could and should of this issue? I just think you can't trust them. In fact, it's interesting because you look at, at Mitt Romney in particular. Uh, it wasn't that long ago he was actually asking for Planned Parenthood's endorsement. He, and when he was running in Massachusetts, when it was politically expedient for him, he supported Roe. He supported birth control. Now he's saying he wants to overturn Roe. He wants to eliminate the family planning program. He now has actually pledged to defund Planned Parenthood. I think he is completely wishy-washy, uh, and this is the kind of thing where women can't trust him, uh, what he says about these issues. I, I think we've got, can we put up on the screen, do we have the, the PDF of the Planned Parenthood uh, questionnaire that Mitt Romney filled out in 1992? Right, so in 1992, this was 1992, right, when he's running for Senate? No, no, no. It was in 2002. 2002. When he was running, like, less than 10 years ago. Less than 10 years ago, he is running in Massachusetts, filling out the Planned Parenthood questionnaire, seeking support, essentially, from the pro-choice community. An endorsement from Planned Parenthood. Does the distance that he has traveled over these past 10 years... Is that a Mitt Romney distance, or is that a Republican Party normal distance? Is this represent the distance that the Republican Party has traveled on the choice issue, or is this just about him taking both sides of every important policy? Well, only Mitt Romney can tell you why he seems to be on every different side of this issue, but I do know that women can't trust him, what, what he says now. I do think, to your point in the beginning, we are seeing a Republican primary that is absolutely a race to the bottom for women, where they are trying to outdo themselves on who would be the worst president for women. Michelle Bachman uh, was the only Republican presidential candidate this year who was female. Uh, she does not have uh, progressive uh, policies on any of these issues. Uh, is it a loss for women that Michelle Bachman dropped out of the race because Republicans aren't considering a female candidate, or does it not matter because they have anti-woman policies in your view? Well, I mean, I think we should have more running, women running for office overall, but obviously we didn't agree with Michelle Bachman on, on any, any positions. That said, I wish there were more women running. Uh, I mean, I think what's going to be interesting is when we look at Rachel in November, the majority of voters are going to be women. Yeah. And they're going to be paying attention to how candidates stand on women's health issues. And I was just in New Hampshire as well. Republican women who support Planned Parenthood are very, very disturbed about the extreme nature of the Republican primary and wondering where they're going to go. I will say it was a striking to see campaign signs on corners all over New Hampshire. Uh, and every once in a while to see Planned Parenthood signs, we, women are watching signs in there among the candidate signs. It's very striking. Yep. I bet you're behind that. Well done. Uh, Cecile Richards, president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Glenn
claims by Republicans and their media echo chamber that the Keystone XL pipeline will create 20,000 jobs or more. Claims like this? The Keystone project would generate 20,000 immediate jobs. It would create at least 50,000 jobs. In total, about 118,000 indirect jobs. 120,000 jobs. Some estimates said could provide up to a million new high-paying jobs. 20,000 to a million new high-paying jobs, according to Fox News. You're saying that is inaccurate? Yeah, not so much. At least if you ask the vice president of TransCanada, the company that wants to build the pipeline, here in an interview by CNN. You know, the, the numbers are, you know, literally pummy technicians and such up and down the line. So they're probably looking at in the field from Montana to, to Houston, um, I don't mean the hundreds. It's certainly not in the thousands because those are construction jobs. So Fox and the Republicans say 20,000 to a million jobs, but the actual owners of the pipeline say a few hundred at best. That's right. And as the Natural Resources Defense Council points out, these inflated job claims are actually a bait and switch to distract attention from the fact that the Keystone XL pipeline would actually be an export pipeline enabling Canada to ship oil to China, resulting in higher gas prices for America. So very few jobs and it won't even give us that energy independence from foreign oil that all the Republican candidates have been talking about in arguing for this pipeline. That's right. Wow. I'm starting to think they're a bunch of liars, too. Can't explain the who or what I was trying to believe. What would you do? What would you do? Do you know? I once had a grip on everything. It feels better to let go. I'm not Your first quote is from a man who made $362,000 giving speeches last year. Oh, I could get speaking fees from time to time, but not very much. That was someone who was questioned about his finances this week. Who thinks three hundred grand is not very much? That would be my former governor, Mitt Romney. Yes, indeed, Mitt Romney. Well done. (laughs) Mr. Romney had a bad week. First, he stumbled over whether or not he would release his tax returns. What what was he hiding? Some people say it would be his 15% tax rate or his, as we found out, offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands. In his defense, Romney said he was not using the Caymans as a tax haven. Well, then what is his money doing there? Well, Mitt Romney is so rich, even his money gets to go on vacation. (laughs) Strapped to the roof of his car. Exactly. (laughs) Mitt's bad week continued. It turns out, whoops, he didn't really win the Iowa caucuses, uh, Rick Santorum did. And Newt Gingrich started rising in the polls in South Carolina. Gingrich did this by kicking around Juan Williams at last weekend's debate. That thrilled the Republican crowd. Williams said he was okay with the rough treatment, but now it does make him nervous to get on a plane with somebody dressed like Newt Gingrich. (laughs) (laughs) So does this mean for the Iowa... Does this mean that when we look up the Iowa caucuses for 2012 that Mitt Romney's name will have an asterisk by it? Yes. That he's like the Barry Bonds now exactly. of the Iowa caucuses. But no matter how bad things got for Romney this week, his opponents kept trying to help him out. One of Newt Gingrich's ex-wives did an ABC News interview and said he asked her to have a, quote, open marriage so that he could have a wife and have a mistress on the side. Gingrich defended himself. He says, look, even back in the late 90s, he was trying to create jobs. Hmm. (laughs) See, this whole, that is a spectacular development. I thought that Newt Gingrich was against open borders, but I guess it's not the case. (laughs) 
borders, not, not boundaries. Yeah. And then at the debate Thursday night, Newt went after the moderator again. He called CNN's John King, quote, close to despicable for asking about the open marriage thing. He then asked John King if they could bring in a, you know, a third moderator, quote, maybe Katie Couric. Just see what happens. <laughs> Texas tough guy Rick Perry is now out of the GOP race for the Republican nomination. That, despite his tough guy talk last September, along these lines. EPA, we don't need you monkeying around and fiddling around and getting in our business on every kind of regulation that you can dream up. You're doing nothing more than killing jobs. It is a cemetery for jobs at the EPA. Well, it looks like the Republican voters have rejected Rick Perry's assertion that it is a cemetery for jobs at the EPA. Yeah, they may disagree about it coming from Rick Perry, but the remaining candidates are singing a very similar tune. If not with the same tough guy Texas bravado, but we'll see. It's still early in the year. What do you have for us today, Des? Well, the Obama administration announced on Wednesday it will not approve the Keystone XL pipeline from Canada after congressional Republicans inserted a rider into the payroll tax cut legislation, forcing a deadline on the decision before a new pipeline route could be finished. White House Press Secretary Jay Carney said the Republicans' 60-day deadline was the sole reason for the denial. Setting an arbitrary deadline through this uh, purely political effort would put the State Department in a corner, would severely uh, hamper their ability to review an alternate route and a new pipeline route in the proper way. This was a huge game of chicken, and the president called the GOP's dare on this thing. Yes, but did the Republicans' arbitrary deadline really backfire, or is it a calculated move to give the Republicans and the oil industry ammunition in the upcoming presidential election? Here's Republican House Speaker John Boehner. Republicans in Congress will continue uh, to push this because it's good for our country and it's good for our economy. And it's good for the American people, especially those who are looking for work. Yeah, a few hundred of them. Yeah, and for its part now, the White House is fighting back with a new ad hitting the oil industry. Secretive oil billionaires attacking President Obama with ads fact-checkers say are not tethered to the facts. Oh, it's on. That may not be enough to reach a busy public against the PR blitz promoting wildly misleading job statistics with the Keystone XL pipeline. You mean like this? The Keystone project would generate 20,000 immediate jobs. It would create at least 50,000 jobs. In total, about 118,000 indirect jobs. 120,000 jobs. Some estimates said could provide up to a million new high-paying jobs. Yeah, and they're also hiding the fact that the Keystone XL pipeline is actually an export pipeline to China and will raise gas prices on Americans. We have a full roundup of all the facts at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. You and your facts.
left has always known, it was up to us to make presidents do what we wanted. You know, it wasn't like Lyndon Johnson woke up one day and said, oh, man, I've been a racist ass my whole life. I should probably change that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it was because he was given no choice. Um, and it's always been when you had the, the slightly more progressive president in office that you had to push the hardest you know it was it was john f kennedy who had to be pushed harder than than eisenhower in some ways it was johnson who had to be pushed harder than kennedy um and it's going to be i think president obama who's going to have to be pushed harder than certain you know more conservative presidents and 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 maybe it's because we have this unrealistic expectation but the fact is when you're the head of the empire you act like the head of the empire unless the people make you stop and so if we want the wars to stop, if we want the, you know, domestic detention uh, possibility to stop, if we want all these, you know, horrible things that we, that we feel are happening to stop, we're going to have to make those happen, whether that's, you know, in the streets, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our schools, doing the work. I think that some progressives have misunderstood who the agent of change is, and we decided to put it all on the president. I'm not saying he's not responsible for what he does, but, you know, if we're doing what we got to do the other 364 days out of the year, then the rest is not going to matter so much. And the problem is I don't think we are, and that's why you know the right has been able to, in some ways, move the administration their direction on things, and, and, and we haven't been as successful. And and that's a, a very interesting point because even I believe it was uh, two Netroots ago, uh, Obama actually sent a message uh, to Netroots Nation saying he actually requesting make me do these things. I need I need your support. If you if you want this, uh, say it. Make make your voices heard. Uh, mo- push me to do more things. And it's it feel it feels like a lot of times that progressives don't seem to understand that aspect of it. Uh, and another an, another uh, funny part is that. As much as everyone's upset, like, I feel like, cause I, I, we're known as being, uh, I guess, pro Obama, being supportive of Obama on the show, but everyone, I think, confuses being pro Obama with therefore not being upset about anything he ever does ever. Right. And well, that is, that's yeah, problematic. I mean, that's a very important point. Yeah. And I think that the other piece that a lot of my, my white brothers and sisters don't get. Um, a, they're not used to being called brothers and sisters, so that's. <laughs> but more than more importantly, um, you know, white folks, I think, unless they're from the South, and this is this is, I don't claim any particular insight just because I'm so smart, but I think that being from the South and white means that my progressive frame, right, the lens that I developed around politics was a racial lens because if you come out of the South and you're progressive. The odds are pretty good. Race has informed you dramatically. I think a lot of white folks who come from other parts of the country might have come from very different kind of frames. You know, race might not have been their organizing principle. It might not have been the thing for them. It might have been the environment. It might have been feminism. It might have been gay rights. It might have been the war, you know. And all those things are great places to enter the movement, too. But it means that you don't have an understanding sometimes when you're not coming from a race perspective as a white person of what it means to people of color if President Obama fails. Right. It's a very different thing. Right. If, if this presidency goes down as a failed presidency, not objectively speaking, because that's always a matter of opinion. But if the narrative, if the if the if the line at the end of the four years or if he gets four more at the end of eight years is that this was a failed presidency, what black folks know. And what those white folks who come from a race lens know is that that is going to have an impact way beyond Barack Obama, that that is going to have an impact on people of color and not just black and brown folks running for president. I mean, black and brown folks trying to get a job down the block, you know, that it's going to affect the way people of color are viewed because it will be perceived failure through the lens of racialization. It'll be a racialized failure, whereas George W. Bush fails and nobody's ever like, well, holy shit, we're never getting another white guy, especially not one. <laughs> 
know, they'll entertain. I have a feeling there will be another white male president at some point, and in spite of George W. Bush, because all the rest of us know it doesn't affect us. Um, and I, and that doesn't mean that we need to hold fire and not critique President Obama. It means, though, that we've got to be mindful of the racial consequence for black and brown folk generally if this guy goes down as a failed president. Um, it's going to be far beyond anything that will happen when a white, now maybe a white female would be the same thing for women. You know, it would be, right. be a similar impact, I think, for women. But whenever you are a minoritized group, a group that has been racialized or gendered or, or sexualized as a minority as, as the other, you have a different burden of representation. And I just hope that white progressives will understand that so that when we're critiquing the president, we're nonetheless doing it with a realization of how it gets heard. It's not just what you mean. It's how it gets heard you know, by the rest of the population. So if the left is going off on him the same way the Tea Party is, the Tea Party then uses that as cover to say, well, our critique isn't racist, right? Because after all, they're doing it, you know? They'll, I mean, I've actually heard Tea Party people say, you know, well, Cornell West is criticizing him. Um, and by, you know? That's a big issue I have. And so here's the question. So right now we're sitting here and we're being all reasonable here and having a reasonable conversation, quoting facts and history and historical context and all that type of stuff. Why is it so hard for this same conversation to be had at bigger and bigger scales, like why can't it happen uh, reasonably and 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 something be taken from it? Like if you see this type of conversation happen on, let's say, an MSNBC, like I've seen these type of conversations happen, and like you'll 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 go on and you'll say something like this, and then they'll take a crazy Republican uh, uh, view of it and and count it as equal to yours, and then we're all supposed to look at it and go, oh, that's just two different sides. Well, it's not two different sides. One is pure fact. One is history. One is acknowledging the history that people have had, had to deal with in the everyday uh, uh, experience of, of an entire people and the other one is just a philosophical argument that, uh, that they're speaking from that they don't even have true they don't even have an, a, a, a real perspective to say anything oh, about right. it well, part of it is just, you know, the media culture is, is rooted in the last, you know, 15, 20 years in this he said, he said, usually it is two he's, occasionally a she, but it's, it's you know, there, there are two sides to every issue. Well, you know, not lynching, um, you know, not, not, uh, you know not, not every issue, you know, there's not two sides really to everything. Uh, there's really not two sides to the Civil Rights Act, actually. Well, I mean, there is. One side is racist, and it really doesn't need to be represented on television. Um, you know, there's not two sides to, uh, uh, to, to an awful lot of issues, but even when there are, uh, it doesn't need to be presented as two equally reasonable sides. You know, um, it really isn't reasonable to believe what some people believe. Now, there are certainly things we could debate, and I don't mind going on and and discussing, for instance, this deeper phenomena of why, like I said in the beginning, why I think the Tea Party narrative is one of racial resentment. The problem is that too often when I am on television, uh, you know, and it's a six-minute segment or on CNN or whatever, um, you know, the, we don't have time to get into the nuance. I mean, the time it took me to make the reasoned argument, you know, would be way more than I would have on that show. So instead, the question comes, and these are questions coming from people I like a lot, like Don Lemon and others who I think really are good. They're, they're, they're good uh, uh, hosts. They, they, have, they ask good questions. They know what they're doing. But they are still constrained by the media culture to where the question comes out, you know, is the Tea Party racist? Go. You have 30 seconds. And that's not 
A, it's not the question, right? And B, even if it were the question, I couldn't answer it in 30 seconds. We need to have a more reasoned argument about why the narrative is rooted in racial resentment. That Now, if, if people say, well, that's not the same as racism, okay, I, if you don't want to call it racism, you just want to call it racial resentment, the impact is the same. I'm not really that bought into the semantics. I just want us to understand when race is the background noise of the stuff we're hearing. And it seems to me that at least in my lifetime, in, 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 in my conscious political lifetime, which is maybe, you know, 30 years or so, my overall lifetime, 43 years, that it seems to me that very little has gone on in this country politically where the background noise has not been about race, whether that's taxing, whether that's the size of government, whether that's education policy, criminal justice policy, even war. Um, race seems to be in the background of just about everything. And it doesn't mean that everybody's racist, but I think that's what they hear. And so they get nervous, they get defensive, and they can't have the conversation because they think if I say we live in a country where racism is deeply embedded in everything we do, that I'm calling them individually horrible, racist, bigoted people, and that I'm making no differentiation between them and David Duke, when in fact I realize a huge difference between David Duke and most everyone. Right, but 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 the point is, unless we're able to have that conversation about systemic racism, um, then we're going to be in real trouble. All of us, not just people of color, but white folks. So we have to sort of divorce this idea that when I call out the culture as as racist, that I'm somehow calling individual people racist. It's not the same. Yeah, it, uh, apparently, race uh, the, the term racist has become the scariest thing you could possibly call a white person um, beyond anything else. So, uh, race racist is the thing, and I I'm. It's hard. It's really hard, I guess, as a person of color, being black, uh, sometimes to kind of deal with these things and try to have the conversation reasonably, like to argue it fact for fact. Like, like you, you've laid out a very, a very, uh, a strong factual uh, argument that lays everything out, gives historical context. Boom, everyone's happy. But sometimes it's not. It's not that easy because you're hearing someone say something that is so crazy and so ignores all of your history, all of your family's history, the discussions that happen day to day, and they're saying it and they're acting like your life is not your life. It's just a possible it's, – it's, it's a way of looking at it as opposed right, exactly, to your life. Exactly, and it's the kind of thing we wouldn't do with any other – uh, person who said, "Hey, this is what happened to me." Like if someone came up to you and said, "You know, God, I was, you know, I was the victim of child sexual assault," you wouldn't be like, "No, you weren't. Stop lying." You know, yeah. You wouldn't. Mm -hmm. say, you would think, "Well, you know, you need to get over that and just move on." What the hell's wrong with you? That was a long time ago. You know, when are you going to move on? You know, uh, that's not what we would say. Uh, people would be at least compassionate and listen. If someone's been traumatized, victimized by some injustice, whether it's child abuse, sexual assault, um, you know, just growing up in a dysfunctional family, which you know, so many of us have done, regardless of race, you would hear it. You would assume, you know, what this person is probably not delusional. Um, maybe I should listen to them. But when it comes to people of color talking about the injury of racism and discrimination, not just the historic injury that their families face, but their own microaggression experiences at the department store, at the, the grocery, you know, at the mall with police, uh, whatever, it's like, well, now, come on, maybe you're insane. Have you ever thought about that possibility? <laughs> Have you ever thought about the possibility that you're a nut, you know? That, that I actually know your life better than you? You ever think about that, Smarty? You know, I mean, that's sort of what we're saying. And the sad thing, and, and, and I think it's an important point for white Americans in particular to, to think about, is unfortunately this really isn't new. Like, it's not just that white folks in the Obama era have decided that black folks are crazy for thinking that racism is still a problem or that Latinos are crazy for thinking it's a problem. It's that white folks have always, in 
every era downplayed the problem. So if you go back to the early 60s and look at the polling that was done of white Americans, even then, this is before the Civil Rights Act, before the Voting Rights Act, before the Fair Housing Act, at a time when nowadays we would all agree it was an apartheid state. It was a formal system of, of institutional racism and white supremacy, but basically everyone would acknowledge that now. But at the time, in 62, 63, Gallup polls found that between two-thirds of whites and 90%, depending on the question and the way it was asked, but at least two-thirds and as many as 90% of whites believed that black folks had fully equal opportunity with whites and were treated the same in the schools, had just as good a chance to get a good education, wow. just as good a chance to get a good job. Now, in retrospect, we know that's ridiculous. But at the time, rational white people, people who were capable of paying their bills on time, feeding the cat, getting their kids to school, putting their shoes on the right feet, like doing things that people do, were still able to look around and go, nah, I don't see it. You know, like the March on Washington happens August 28, 1963, and two out of three white folks are watching Walter Cronkite that night going, what the hell are these brown people so upset about? But, and why is that one guy dreaming? What's his problem? You know, but what is that? You know, right. well, well, I have a dream. What, what, well, this, the life is a dream. Everything's wonderful. You know, they, they didn't <laughs> Jesus see it, Christ. You know? And so if white folks didn't see it in 1963 and 1962, when it was blatant, right? And if they didn't see it in the 30s, and you can go back and listen to what white folks said then, the 1890s, you would have, you know, editorials in southern newspapers written by white editors that said, you know, we all get along great down here if those Yankees would just leave us alone. I mean, in every era, white folks have looked reality straight in the eye and acted like it wasn't happening. And I guess the question that I pose to white folks, which makes people very uncomfortable, but it's the only question that I can think to ask is, what makes you think that white folks who haven't gotten it right yet, ever, have suddenly figured out the way the world really works when it comes to race, and black folks who got it right every single time, every time, have suddenly lost their minds. Like, like when yeah. did that happen, you know? And if you can't answer that question, or you can't even understand the question, which is what I think is even scarier, then you're not prepared to enter into this conversation. All I need from you is a good conversation, conversation. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Presidential campaign update now. And sadly, we must all bid a fond farewell to the Rick Perry presidential <laughs> campaign. Rarely has a candidate flamed out so spectacularly <laughs> after coming in so strong. He truly looked more comfortable in a cowboy hat than out of one, which is... A great quality in a cowboy <laughs> and a slightly frightening one in a potential president. <laughs>
He certainly looked more comfortable in a cowboy hat than in a televised debate, uh, for example. <laughs> and he has uh, withdrawn from the nominations race. Perhaps, I mean, let's let's try and be generous here, perhaps because he realised that the whole process is a massive waste of time and money, a travesty of democracy and an insult <laughs> to the intelligence of all Americans. Uh-huh. But also because things hadn't really been going too well for him since he forgot his own policies in the TV debate. <laughs> Perry said uh, yesterday, uh, I'm pulling out of the race and I would like instead to endorse... Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, no, no, uh, no, you know the guy with the suspicious-looking hair. Uh, it doesn't look real, does it? Ah, uh, no, it's on, it's on the tip of my tongue. You know the chap who always does the funny, funny Mexican accent in the green room before debates, <laughs> can bench three fifty, and has the extreme, increasingly stroppy collection of ex-wives. Ah, uh, no, 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 it's gone. Anyway, I'm supporting him. It it does seem more and more likely that the Republicans are going to get the candidate that almost none of them want, Mitt Romney. <laughs> And, as you say, in a final desperate attempt to not have him, Rick Perry endorsed Newt Gingrich, who may have the only chance of beating Romney, despite the fact that Newt Gingrich has a lifetime of inexplicably successful horndoggery (laughs) that keeps coming back to bite him. Let me take you on a little stroll through his strangely high-profile sexual history. Gingrich met his first wife at high school when she was one of his teachers, so even at that age he was living out the plot of a bad porn film. Uh, He left her while she was getting treatment for cancer to be with his second wife, who he later left when she had multiple sclerosis, to be with his third wife, who could hardly complain if the cycle continued one day. Classy. It's, It's not clear exactly how he does this, and his only response to this history seems to basically be... Players gone play. <laughs> Players gone play, people. Now, the the only solution to this sequence of events is that power must be an intense aphrodisiac. Because the only other answer is that Newt Gingrich has a 14-inch penis. <laughs> and I cannot believe in a god that would let something like that happen in the world. <laughs> Now, Gingrich has turned on the media after the uh, various allegations concerning his uh, marital life uh, were uh, published, and he's accused the media of being vicious and has railed against the gratuitous negativity of the media coverage. Meanwhile, in other American election news, last week Newt Gingrich launched an attack advert against Mitt Romney, slamming his rival for the heinous crime of being able to speak a little bit of basic French. (laughs) Now, as the old saying goes... Do not tease a tiger for being stripy if you're wearing a zebra print dressing gown. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely amazing, uh, this ad. It's called The French Connection, and uh, it features a clip of Romney talking in French from when he wan- ran uh, the Winter Olympics. Uh, it's, it's accompanied with a French accordion soundtrack, <laughs> and the ad says that Mr Romney is a, I quote, Massachusetts moderate who ran away from Ronald Reagan, and the voiceover says... Massachusetts moderate Mitt Romney, he'll say anything to win. Anything. And just like John Kerry, he speaks French too. <laughs> it's, it's, then later has a clip of Mitt Romney saying, Bonjour, je m'appelle Mitt Romney. <laughs> Which is not speaking French. <laughs> that is reading anything out of a basic phrase book. Is that seriously a point of attack now? I think we've, it is, John. We've talked about the mystifying shame that ex-candidate John Huntsman seemed to be forced to demonstrate in his very useful ability to speak Chinese. <laughs> and now this. It's bullshit, Andy. Or as Mitt Romney would say, Connery. <laughs> it's electoral kryptonite. Just you know, the, the ability not to be entirely monolingual is, frankly, enough to destroy anyone. And rightly but, so, John. You know, when... 
when your country, America, bought, bought Louisiana off the French, it also bought the right to completely ignore its language and everything it stands for. When did people start getting mixed up between weaknesses and skills, Andy? <laughs> it's still early days in the uh, 10-month festival of extravagantly funded mudslinging, grandstanding and misinformation that is a presidential election. And uh, this is the second one I've really followed closely after uh, we, we sort of covered the, the, the last uh, election on, on the bugle in its, uh, in its early days. And to the uninitiated, it does... Does look rather like a parade of wealthy lunatics, halfwits, and chancers, but <laughs> it turns out he's in fact the greatest democracy in the world, just doing democracy. That's right. And um, it does seem also that the Republican nomination battle seems to be a battle to convince voters that you are the candidate who is most likely to legislate the USA back to the 19th century, <laughs> and it cannot be long before one of them advocates reintroducing smallpox. <laughs> Andy. To re-quote Newt Gingrich, <laughs> players gone play. <laughs> uh, and to redress the balance of this uh, extremely anti-Gingrich piece, uh, here are some facts uh, about Mitt Romney to be used in a swift boat-style attack advert. <laughs> Mitt Romney fought for the Viet Cong, although he says he only did so by accident on a single weekend in the early 1990s. In his career as a vulture capitalist, Mitt Romney used to start every board meeting by saying... I love the smell of bankruptcy in the morning. Mitt Romney wants to ban unicycling, custard pies and all other forms of non-Republican clowning. And Mitt Romney thinks that gay marriage should be compulsory. At a recent rally in Wisconsin, he was filmed looking like he was thinking to himself, everyone should marry a gay at least once. Let's just say it's Newt Gingrich should be ashamed of himself. In a desperate effort to revive his floundering campaign, he's flagrantly playing the race card. In the Sunday night debate in South Carolina, he repeated his canard against Barack Obama, calling him the best food stamp president in American history and claiming he wants to maximize dependency. Here he's playing off one of the oldest stereotypes in the book, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Then when Juan Williams called Gingrich on it, he used the overwhelmingly white audience to his advantage, denying that he was being insulting to black Americans. And then he used the line again about Obama, saying the fact is that more people have been put on food stamps by Barack Obama than any president in American history. But there's an obvious answer for the increase in food stamps. We've been in the worst economic crisis since the food stamp program began and the number of people on food stamps started to go up dramatically under George W. Bush. But the atmospherics were all in Gingrich's favor, dressing down a black journalist in South Carolina who dared to question his use of racial cold words to go after a black president. It was a no-win situation for Juan Williams and a no-win situation for our country, and it made for one of the uglier moments in this very ugly campaign. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
sadly, it was a rough night for Newt Gingrich coming in fourth place thanks to a blistering barrage of negative ads. In December, nearly half of all political commercials in Iowa were attacks on Gingrich. It got so bad, even non-political ads went after him. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I'm loving it. Unlike Newt Gingrich, who left his wife with cancer. Now, now, most of these ads were produced by the pro-Romney super PAC, Restore Our Future. But I don't blame Mitt for these ads. He couldn't have stopped the ads if he wanted to. As he explained to MSNBC's Coffee Joe Morning. Super PACs have to be entirely separate from a campaign and a candidate. I'm not allowed to communicate with a super PAC in any way, shape, or so form. So you're not it's coordinating a, in any way whatsoever? My goodness, if, if we coordinate in any way whatsoever, we go to the big house. That's right. The big house. The slammer. The gray bar hotel. The hooskow. The clink. The windy city. The cat's pajamas. Montezuma's revenge. 23 skidoo. The point is... It is not Romney's super PAC. It is a separate organization founded by Romney's lawyer, for which Romney has personally raised money and that in turn has spent $2.8 million to support him. Totally separate. The same way that Chang was separate from Aang. But for some reason, Newt Gingrich does not believe it. Are you calling Mitt Romney a liar? Yes. You're calling Mitt Romney a liar? Well, you seem shocked by it. I, 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 yes. I mean, what, Why what are you, you saying say? he's a liar? The, 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 this is a man whose staff created the PAC. His millionaire friends fund the PAC. He pretends he has nothing to do with the PAC. It's baloney. Baloney? Those are strong words coming from a man who's one-eighth coal cut. His grandfather was an olive loaf. And now, Newt has the knives out for Mitt Romney. Listen to these not-so-veiled threats he issued last night. We are not going to go out and run nasty ads. But I do reserve the right to tell the truth. And if the truth seems negative, that may be more a comment on his record than it is on politics. Oh, Mitt. <laughs> you have made a fatal mistake. You may have wounded Newt. But you left him alive <laughs> and alone with his first love. Hey. Newt's wound will now fester, oozing a pustulant rage which will render down into liquid vengeance and then pour into the tip of a single hollow-nosed bullet and then fire into the heart of Mitt Romney's dreams and dance and cackle on the grave of your ambition. Not in a negative way. <laughs> Nation, personally, I cannot wait for this weekend's debates in New Hampshire. Because when Mitt Romney least expects it, Newt Gingrich is going to turn to him and say... Hello. My name is Newt Gingrich. You killed my campaign. Prepare to die. I think that makes Ron Paul Princess Buttercup.
Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Casey from Michigan, Whitmore Lake, Michigan. I had called probably a couple weeks back and given some perspective uh, as a retail manager um, while I was doing, you know, hiring for the holiday season and such. I am kind of answering your call um, in your most recent podcast about the uh, white privilege perspective. I am not African-American. However, I can say that I can understand a little bit about what he is talking about. Um, not because I'm African-American, but more or less because I came out of the closet myself probably about five years ago. So as a white male, I got to enjoy the white privilege that you're talking about for a very long time. And I still get to. But the difference is now that I have become a minority, it is amazing how you can see your... Um, not your rights, but the way people interact with you, the way people interact with you change just by changing that one thing about you. And being gay and white offers a unique perspective because you get to experience both sides of it. It's not like an African-American can change themselves from black to white and experience white privilege. But because I came out of the closet so much later, I got to experience life as a straight white male versus a gay white male. And the differences are tremendous. And you learn real quick that when you bump from being a majority in America to being a minority in America, you start to understand little things. From my perspective, you know, being able to kiss my boyfriend in public, you have to pick what public you can do that at. Being able to hold hands in public, you have to be able to choose a win that's appropriate. Those things aren't seen by straight white America. So I don't know if that's necessarily what you were talking about, but I thought I would definitely give you some of my perspective on it. Thank you very much for your podcast. I thought it was great. And keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay. This is Will from Oklahoma. Uh, as far as Daryl's commentary and talking about white privilege, just something that I know from personal experiences, what he's talking about as far as likening vegan and animal rights to slavery is what I've read, I've heard a lot of commentary as far as plantation owners valuing animals in higher regards than the slaves that they had. However, I just don't see the logic that vegan fighting for animal rights in any way stymies what we're not doing in other areas. As far as white privilege goes, anybody that wants to know about it, just one thing that I have from my own personal experience, I have a half-black, half-Indian little sister. We adopted her when I was 14 years old, so the amount of racism that I've seen and just opened my mind to that, just from having her in my life, has definitely opened my eyes to what white privilege is, and not only white privilege, but also black racism, and black on black racism. There's quite a bit of it, and I guess it was just unbeknownst to me and to anybody in my family until we all experienced it. Anyway, love the show. Thank you. Hello, my name is Paul. I'm from Indiana. I was calling because I was listening to the show with my wife, and there was a comment about the veganism tied to white privilege statement. And I am 
black, I'm, I'm biracial American. I claim to be black because at the end of the day, you know, white people said don't date my daughter and black people said come to my barbecue. But the tie between veganism and white privilege, it's not a simple thing of, you know, this is tied directly to slavery. It's a matter of, from my understanding of veganism, I'm a fairly well-educated man. It's a choice that you're allowed to, it's a choice you were privileged to make, but it's not an inexpensive choice and it's an educated choice. And it's the ties to monetary and higher education that make it appear to be a choice of, you know, privileged white people. This is seen in the fact of, you know, all the vegans I know seem to comment about how expensive the lifestyle is, about, you know, how they had to do lots of research. These are things that are usually not granted to black Americans. Henceforth, it is seen as something that is tied to white privilege because it is seen as something that is tied to educated, rich, white individuals. Henceforth, the tie becomes white privilege. Now, if it's actually there, that's a matter in its entirety. Uh, not my job to judge. I don't really care. But it is a tie between what appears to be a select group of educated, wealthy, white individuals making the choice to not eat meat because they have the ability to do such granted to them through white privilege. I hope that helps. I can call back later, try to explain more in more detail. But as you said, keep the comments short and concise. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So as predicted, I find this conversation fascinating and informative, and I hope it continues. I'm going to talk a little bit about it today and, and hope to hear more from you guys. And maybe this is a bad idea. I'm going to explain a little bit about what I've come to understand and who knows how silly and childish and naive it'll sound to those who already know what I'm talking about. It'll sound like the most obvious thing in the world. But, but by far, the most interesting thing that, that I've come to understand is, is actually a fleshed out version of something that Daryl said in his original uh, comments. And, and I think that's what people were, were responding to when, because he said that there was a time in this country when animals were valued above humans. But he didn't explain in a whole lot of detail what he meant by that. I mean, clearly he was talking about slaves. So it was almost there, but I didn't quite get where he was coming from, obviously. And so the callers have helped me understand that really nuanced difference between you know what? What basically everyone who goes through standard American education understands is, uh, you know, slaves weren't treated as humans. They were treated as property. They were made to do work without uh, any payment. They were abused and so forth. And, you know, they they were property. They were considered in economic terms, not in human terms. Like that is what most people broadly understand. But if you had asked me to just guess, because I didn't know, but if you'd asked me to guess up until you know a week ago. I would have said that it, as horrible as it is to think of any any human in purely economic terms, if you'd for, force me to guess, I would have said probably if you go back to the 1800s, you find a plantation owner and you ask them what property of theirs has the most value in terms of running the farm between the slaves who go and work in the fields and pick the cotton and the animals who do the various things that animals do on a farm, I would have guessed – that the humans were more valuable because I'm just probably biased in favor of humans. I think that we have brains that are capable of doing more things than animals and you know all, all sorts of things. So as, as terrible as it is to think of a human in purely economic terms, that's what I would have guessed. 
And so to be corrected on that is very illuminating because it, it sheds light on, on a piece of the story of slavery that doesn't often get talked about necessarily because it's not just an economic reality that a human could have less economic value than an animal, but there's an emotional component to that. In, I mean, an incredibly emotional component to that because, I, I mean, again, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be part of a race who's literally considered to be worth less than an animal. I, I had probably, for the most part, come to terms with the idea of being thought of as less than human, which is already bad enough. But then really, like, oh, so not only are we worth less than humans – we're also worth less than the ox. You gotta be fucking kidding me. I mean, that's that's a a small nuance difference with a huge impact that it can make. So, anyways, that is easily my favorite thing I've learned from this discussion so far. Very illuminating. If you have uh, you know comments on that, further insights, please share two zero six two zero two three four one zero. Which brings us back to what started this whole conversation was Daryl. Uh, and uh, and he, in his most recent comment, suggested blacking it up at, for a uh, you know, potential source for the show, which if you just listened to the episode before you're hearing me talk and you didn't skip through it, you just heard a clip from them. So I'm very happy to to have brought them on. And uh, so it was you know, a 13, 14-minute clip. About 80% of it was a white guy talking. Believe me, the irony of that is not lost on me, but I don't know what to do about it because – that was uh, really like the best clip that made the most sense for the show and, and talking about the, the election. And so what we, what we learned from that was incredible insight onto you know what could very easily be described as the potential collateral damage of Obama either you know losing the election or being thought of generally in society as a failed president. And you know so that was really great insight that I was really happy to be able to share with you guys that you know even though it was being said by a white guy who's making a really good point on race relations that you know those who criticize Obama aren't doing it for you know I mean obviously the vast majority or especially the liberals uh, criticizing from the left you know we're not doing it for racial reasons but I I, I mean myself included for sure and I think the vast majority of, of them are doing it with a blind eye towards what it means for race relations. And it's especially easy to have a blind eye to that when – although you can kind of recognize, OK, so if Obama fails, he's seen as a you know failed president and that's that can reflect badly on African Americans as a whole and that's bad for everyone but it's definitely worse – for African Americans, and so those of us who will, you know, will feel the negative effects of it, as you know, because the whole society will, we're not going to be hit hardest, and so we're obviously, you know, for that reason, not the most sensitive to it. So that's it for today. I'm just going to thank a few members before I go, as I always do. Bruce M. signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on July 6th. Mark A. signed up for a leftist monthly membership and has stuck with the show since May 30th. And, you know, I usually only thank a couple of members because it seems like the right number to do. But uh, today, Jeff T. got lucky because he sent me an email immediately before I sat down to record here. And, uh, and, and Jeff's a very special member who does you know he he just does things a little bit differently he likes to manage his membership manually meaning he has you know he signed up for a membership over a year ago 
and then instead of having PayPal take care of the automatically renewing subscription payment for him, he wanted to do it himself. And he actually took the time to sit down and write another email saying, hey, I'm due to re-up my membership. And his one request for his renewal, when I thanked him and asked, you know, and, and mentioned his name on the air, to also mention his blog. And so you know, Jeff is active on the Best of the Left Facebook page. I see him there all the time. And, and then he's out doing his own work, making a name for himself at theliberalcurmudgeon.com. So huge thanks to Jeff for you know actually making the extra effort to manually renew his subscription and for you know hanging out on the Facebook page and doing all his work and and you know and he promotes the show on theliberalcurmudgeon.com. So definitely check that out. So uh, huge thanks to Jeff, Mark, and Bruce and all of the members and donors who help keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and spreading individual clips through your social networks. All all that can be done through the website. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, you can join with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor